0: Uh, we are in our series entitled "Strangers in a Strange Land" as we examine what it means to be a Christian in today's world. And today, as we already heard read for us, is we hear that we are to grow up in our salvation. And growing up is hard. I, I don't know. I mean, we all know that when we think of uh, that, the, we who are adults, we remember the years, our junior high or high school years, and they're not years that we'd like to remember very well. I mean, we're very awkward. Uh, we go through a lot of painful lessons, and when we see our children growing up, we want them to avoid many of the pitfalls that we ourselves experience, right? So we, we teach them, and, and it, sometimes those lessons are hard. I mean, and they start when they're very young, and we think it's tough when they're little, but the older that they get, the lessons become much harder and have many different ramifications. So there are times when I look at my children now, and I'm like, how do I explain this so they, they understand at a level that they can get so I can help them grow up. And, and I think the questions are hard, and kids ask hard questions. And kids do very difficult sometimes things that happen, and you try to explain it to them. And, and for us who are adults, we, we get it, but they don't yet. Just, just the other day, uh, my wife and I were, we were sleeping, and we, we were awakened by our three-year-old son screaming early in the morning. And I, I wrote about this on Facebook And I hear him yelling uh, because he shares a room with his sister. He's three; she's six. So they have bunk beds. She sleeps on the top bunk, and he sleeps on the bottom bunk. And I hear he's yelling at the top bunk, and he's saying, "No, Momo! No! No! You can't have my trains!" Because he has all these trains that he carries around like a you know some homeless guy. He just like pets it, you know, like Gollum with my precious. That's what he does with his trains. And he's like, my trains, no, no, mo no, mo." No. And he comes running in our bedroom yelling, going, she took my trains. <laughs> and she took my trains. And he starts to cry. And I'm like, it's like 6 in the morning. What do you mean she took her trains? She's sleeping, and he runs back into the other room, and he starts yelling <laughs> at the top bunk, you took my trains. So we're trying to explain to him, no, you're having a, you had a nightmare. Now, try to explain to a 3-year-old what a nightmare is. He doesn't have that ability to discern between what's what's real and what's imaginary yet. And and it takes time to learn. It's a lesson that we learn when we're growing up, right? I mean, there's a reason why we don't remember anything usually when we're below three years old. Because they're too painful. I mean, my son right now, we're trying to potty train him. And he knows full well what he's doing. He knows, we go, you know, where, is the, where does the poo-poo and potty go? It goes in the toilet. And, you know, that's what he says. And, and you know... Who goes in the toilet? Big boy's go in the toilet. Are you, you have a diaper? Are you a big boy? Yes. No, you're not. <laughs> you know, we're trying to explain that to him. But he comes in, he knows full well what's going on. He even runs in, turns around, and goes, my diaper's full. <laughs> it's like, you know what's going on. Those are the lessons that we have to learn. These, ch- the children have to be trained, right? They have to learn to eat and do all these basic things that we forget, and then they get older and they have to learn other lessons that are not as easy. And they have to grow up, Right? I mean, that's part of the problems that we have in our generations that are my, part of my generation and the generation behind me is that they are perpetual adolescents. They don't want to grow up. But we have to grow up. And growing up is hard. Peter knew that. Peter is writing to these people that have been scattered throughout the known world through this time of persecution and he's telling them to grow up. Now, many of them aren't new believers. Some of them that have been in Christ for about thirty years, see, age is not a factor in spiritual maturity. It's not. In our small group series, this we just started off. My small group just started off this past week, and one of the questions was: Is how do you know you're spiritually, or how do you know someone is spiritually mature? Now, I took a class when I was uh, in grad school that was spiritual disciplines and spiritual warfare—is what it was called—and in the class there was a poster that they had and it had a chart on it with different columns and rows and the columns said had all these different subjects like witnessing bible reading praying like fasting all of these uh, different columns and in it it showed what a person was supposed to look like at each stage of development like if you're a baby in christ you should be able to read this much or adolescent mature all of these different things and i looked at that and i'm like i don't quite see that in scripture I don't see marking off the list if I'm spiritually mature for that. What I do see is this, that I should look more like Jesus than the day before. That, to me, is the the hallmark, the benchmark of spiritual maturity. We are to grow and look more like Jesus. And every one of us in this room would say that we need a lot of growing to do, right? Is is that right? We We all need to look like Jesus. I mean, many of us, we're very on the low rung right now. And we need to take that next step. And there's always another step. Until you reach glory, there's always another step to take in our spiritual maturity. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've been in church. We all can grow in in our faith and to look more like Jesus. And Peter understood that. That's why Peter lays out some things for us on how we are to grow. And I want us to really look at this text and try to really jump into it. See, we understand here that Peter wants us to grow up. He says this, in order for us to grow up, you've got to put away certain things. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual me- milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And this is the verse I want to focus on first, is verse 3. If, it's a conditional word, if indeed that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, the word taste it's not just taste like we think of taste but it's the idea of partaking of experiencing. And the idea here is if you have tasted God's goodness, in other words, if you have if you have his salvation, then you need to do these things. So, for us to grow in spiritual maturity, we have to understand that the first step for spiritual growth involves us trusting in God's salvation. Trusting in God's salvation. That's the first step. You can't be spiritually mature without being born again. We all, in this room, we are all commanded by the Lord Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 3. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Born from above is also what it means. It means transformed. There's no thing that you can do to earn God's favor. But there are many people within the churches today that think that they can get into the kingdom of God without being born again. And that's a complete lie. I mean, imagine for a moment that we have someone come from the uh, the the Amazon rainforest and just shows up here in America. And they say, in their language, translator, Portuguese, that they want to be president of the United States. And what would we say? We say you can't do it. Why? Well, first of all, you're not an American. And you're not born here. So you cannot be the President of the United States. So let's say he goes off and he says, he he changes his name. He gets an American name. Let's say his name becomes Brian. And he changes his name to Brian. And he shows back up again and he, still through the translator, says, I have an American name now. I want to be President of the United States. And we'd still say, no, you can't. You have to be born here. Then he, he goes back and he learns English and he learns all of the American customs and he starts wearing American dress and he watches American TV shows and he, goes, he follows American sports and he does all of this stuff. And he comes back and he says, now, I'm an American. I want to be president of the United States. And we'd say, no, you still can't be president of the United States because you've not been born here. You've not been born here. I mean he can even take the oath, but that still doesn't enable him to be born here. He can he can say all that he wants to, but unless he's born here, he cannot be president of the United States. Now, what's the meaning of that? Meaning that we have to be born again. We can do all of these different things, but none of those other things makes us a Christian. We can listen to Christian radio stations, we can wear Christian t-shirts. We can say even creeds and things like that and say, I believe we can identify ourselves or check that part of our Facebook or whatever and say that we are Christians, but that does not make us a Christian. Only one thing makes us a Christian, and that means being born again, being born from above, repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The Scriptures pretty clear about that time and time again, that it's only through Jesus Christ that we are saved. As Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't have salvation any other, you can't have it in any other way. It can't be. It doesn't matter what other religion that you come from or you adhere to. I mean, there are many different today. They said, as long as you're sincere in your belief, you're okay. It's arrogant to say that there's only one way. You know, it's interesting. If I was talking to a pilot, and I said that there are many different ways of thermo or aerodynamics, they'd laugh at me. There's only one way. When you bring that plane down, I guarantee that you will be an absolutist for that pilot. You are. We are absolutists when it comes to other people, but we're we are relativists and tolerant when it comes to our, people to be to us. But God is pretty intolerant because he is God. We have to be trusting in God's salvation, understand that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, here's a few things that I want us to understand about this salvation when Peter says, taste and see that the Lord is good. The first of all is this, this salvation is entered. It's entered. As Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 1 through 10, truly, truly, it's his way of saying, here, pay attention to this, what I'm about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. In other words, he's saying, if you try to or pawn yourself off as being a part of the people of God by anything else, then through Jesus Christ, you're a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep to him the gatekeeper opens, to the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. The figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. See, we can only enter the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. As the book of Acts chapter 4, verse 12 makes abundantly clear, and there is salvation in no one else, in no one else for there is only for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved so we we enter into this salvation we receive it jesus as lord and savior that we know that he is coming again that his resurrection vindicated his life and put the stamp on his crucifixion to know that he is coming again and he will judge every person without exception every single person in this room will stand before God himself, and will give an account for what they have done in the body. The book of Hebrews is very, very clear. And all men are are destined to die once and then face judgment. We don't like to talk about judgment anymore, but it is one of the pillars of the faith. We see that God is himself judge. Every one of us will be judged. Without exception. According, first of all, did we believe? in jesus christ and secondly what did we do with what we had or have received now we see that the salvation is entered into and it's entered into by faith but taste brings out more than that it means that it's also i mean when you taste something what do you do especially if it's good i i stop and i i do this i like to i like prime rib nothing better than a great prime rib Ever had a really good prime rib? You cut that piece. For those that are vegetarian, I'm so sorry. I I I shall pray for you. God has declared all foods clean. Praise the Lord. Okay, and then I take that piece of meat and I just let it sit on my tongue. And you you do what? You savor it. Whoa, go, oh, so good. You just want to eat it. It's so good. So it's not only just entered into but it is experienced. It's experienced. We experience the joy of the Lord. When we enter into God's salvation, we experience it. We do experience God. Now, some people overemphasize experience and look at experience more than doctrine. But we ha- we can't throw experience out just because some abuse it and overemphasize on one side or the other. We have to say and and see what scripture says taste, and see. That's an experiential thing. I love uh, what Tim Keller uh, wrote, or actually said. He did a, a book called The Reason for God. It's written to unbelievers. And in it, he ans- answers some of the, uh, I think it's the six most common objections toward to Christianity. And there's a video series that goes with it. It's a fascinating video series. Um, it's not for everyone, but it is, it's a pretty powerful series. And what he does is he he takes these people who are not yet Christians, many of them are atheists, but they're willing to dialogue, and he, puts, he sits down with them in a room, and he, he starts off with a question and allows them to answer it, and then he tries to respond and answer that objection. And one woman asks him a very difficult question. She says this, is it plausible to you that it might not be true? If someday that you had to face the fact that all of your work was for nothing, would you be able to do so? Now think about that question. How would you respond to it? That's a tough question. He responds this way. He First of all, he clarifies the question and really gets to the root of it. He says, really what she is saying, he said, is would I be open to the possibility that Christianity isn't true? And many of us are just a lot of anxiety developing within us as we even hear the question. And he responds to it masterfully. He says this, the reasons I believe, just speaking personally, are both rational and you might say experiential. That is, there are two reasons why at this point in my life I believe Christianity is true. One is, I think about it, I look at the arguments, I think reasonably, and I feel like on the whole, I feel the arguments are very strong. And that's my rational side. I could imagine that in a group like this, because they're very smart people, having that some of my arguments being weakened, yes, I could see that. Could I be open to you, he asked himself, uh, perhaps in here dismantling some of my arguments, yes. Then he says, the existential part, that is the sense of God's presence, the powerful sense of God's presence, which came into my life after I was first convinced Christianity that probably Christianity was true, then I got into it. Then I had these very strong experiences of God's presence. That's not going to go away very quickly. So he's willing to, to argue and say, Could you argue me and, and present these different arguments and I would think about it and I could think it would be rational? Yes, but you can't change the fact that I've experienced God and all of his glory and his grace. And that you're not going to change rather quickly. So he masterfully goes through that and shows that there is a rational side to our belief, but there's also this experiential side to who he is. Many of us just look on the experience and don't even want to talk about the rational, but God commands us to use our minds and think about these things, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, God wants us to enter into this salvation. He also wants us to experience it, and that means having joy, joy, See, that's the last point that we need to see. That this taste that we have, if we taste that the Lord is good, it means that we are enjoying it. We're enjoying it. We enter into it by faith through Christ and Him alone. We experience Him and all of His goodness and long for His presence. But then we enjoy Him. And do you know it's a command to enjoy Scripture, to enjoy God? It's a command. That's why in Psalm thirty-seven, four it says, "Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart." Delight. What do you delight in? We all delight in something. What do you delight in? You know, if you're delighting in anything more than God, then you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. And I mean that. I remember when uh, Melissa and I were dating. I, I told her straight up, I said right in the beginning, I said, hey, just so you know, you'll always be second. Most women would be like, what? She goes, I would have it no other way. It's true. To it be second place to God. Because Jesus said, if anyone loves father or mother or sister or brother or even husband and wife or children more than me, is not worthy of me. Jesus has to be top shelf. Number one, always before career, before comfort, before success, power, every earthly relationship that we can imagine, before fame, before fortune, before everything. He demands top shelf, the very best of who we are and what it is that we have to offer. See, God has placed it within us to pursue joy. Every one of us, without exception, Pursue joy. We do. I mean, even Jesus Himself did that, but He saw where His ultimate joy was, and that was in God and God alone. Look at this passage, Hebrews chapter twelve, verse one through two. Jesus is speaking, or we see the uh, the Holy Spirit saying, "Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also as- lay aside every weight, everything in life." if we look at the witnesses, those that have gone before, let's lay everything aside and sin, which clings so closely, let's get rid of it, and let us run with endurance this race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What did Jesus pursue? His joy. For the joy set before him, he knew what Offering himself would result in reconciliation of man with God that would bring joy. Where to find our joy in God? Even as Paul said it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Now that doesn't mean walking around going, praise the Lord all the time, or always having a smile on my face, even when I'm in excruciating pain. But it's a quietness about us that continues on. A quiet confidence and joy, happiness that overflows from us because of our relationship with God. You don't have to completely always be demonstrable in your joy. But it should be a byproduct of your relationship with God. If we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And this is what the old Puritan divines realized and they captured it really well in the Westminster Shorter Catechism in the very first question and if you're unfamiliar with the catechism it's these series of questions and answers it's a means of instruction for young people for them to grow in grace and godliness and this first question was what is the chief end of man what is the chief end of man why did God make us and I love what they responded with the chief end of men is to enjoy God, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him! Do you enjoy God? I mean, many of us look at God as just this, I mean, He's like this dusty, sandy, faraway, cosmic police officer with a big, flowing, white beard, not as nice as Santa, um, a little bit like Burl Ives, and uh, has this kind of Charlton Heston-like voice. God is much more than that. I mean, he delights in being with us and showing himself in our presence. And that joy transforms us. As Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It becomes the strength that we have, knowing that we have experienced God, just like Keller could say. There's the rational side. There's that experiential side that you're not going to be taking away. There's a joy there. Not a delusion. Not something that I have to manufacture. But something as a byproduct of being saved. Whereas the psalmist wrote, For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. So the fact of the matter is we pursue what we are, what we enjoy, without exception, no matter what that is. But we also will do any, if we are, if we are saved then we are to pursue him, which means that if we truly want and want the blessing of God in our lives, then we're going to do what pleases him. Do we not? Just like someone who's in a dating relationship, they, I mean, I'm amazed at certain women who hate football, but because of the, the guy that they like, they start to watch football. Why? Because they care about the person. I mean, there's stuff that I, I watch romantic comedies right now. I would never do that. Did I just say that out loud? Really? Okay, because of my wife, and I, 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 I like to spend that time with her. So I want to do what help is pleasing to her. And if we want to follow God, then we do what we should want to do and must do what pleases him and one of the things that pleases him is when we rid ourselves of sinful behaviors that's that number two point that you should write down when we rid ourselves of sinful behaviors that's why Peter says there he goes through it he says we are to put away put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Now, there are five different things that he mentions there, and this isn't in your notes, uh, but I'm going to just go through each one of these, um, and uh, I want to give you uh, an opposing behavior to put in place to counteract that, but hold off on that. The first thing that we see here is malice, which is literally, in Greek, it just means general wickedness. And then secondly, we see deceit, which means cunning deceit used by trickery and treachery. It comes from a a verb meaning to catch with bait. Catch with bait. The idea is you are trying to get someone to believe something that isn't true, and you're going to bait that hook, and so they will believe it. Number three, hypocrisy, And, and it means exactly that. Hypocrisy or pretense. We must get rid of any thought of hypocrisy making ourselves look better and more holy than we are. Fourth one there is envy. It's the next word and was often used in secular Greek to express the envy that one makes that makes one begrudge another something he himself desires but does not yet possess it is sadness occasioned by the thought of another's good and aggression in seeking to do them harm at least through slander and that's the last one slander which simply means speaking against someone the the word literally means to run them down to disparage and was used by Aristophanes of a slave who blabs his master's secrets. These are the things that were to put away from us. But how? I mean, I could say, stay up here all day and say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But the reality is, is that we need to replace that behavior with something. I was uh, working with a ministry while I was in college called Exodus International. Which helps, uh, helps those that are caught in the trap and lie of homosexuality. And helps them get out of it through Christ. It demonstrates it. Now, the one thing that I learned, I had to go into the ministry, and I was interviewing the, the, uh, the man who was in charge in the uh, Lakeview community in Chicago, and uh, he was saying this. He goes, what you don't understand is that everything in their life is centered around that sin. I mean, there's even, there's even telephone books with homosexual businesses that they can frequent and support. It's all there for them. And he goes, all of their friends, everything that they do, the restaurants that they go to, everything centers around that. So when they come out of that, you have to help them show an entirely new life. I mean everything, from the time they get up in the morning till they go into bed at night. They need new friends and new family and all of these new things. So you not only tell them what to get out of, you have to show them where to go to and what it is to have. And that's what we need to see within this passage, is that for each one of these different five sinful behaviors that we are to rid ourselves from, we need to put five new behaviors into place. And that's what we need to do. The first one is helping others. See, malice is general wickedness. And one of the characteristics that we would see, as we, or we should see as we go through this, is that each one of these sins is, not in, uh, is more in relation to how we treat our fellow man than it is directly in our relationship with God. Because remember, our relationship with man reflects our relationship with God. So these are how we relate to one another. We need to be helping others, not having wicked intent, but to be helping others, spending ourselves in serving other people. And there's a variety of which w- ways that we can serve. And remember that Christ not, came not to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. And when we do that, we are being very Christ-like. Because as Christ served, so too are we to serve and help others. That's one way we can counteract wickedness. Secondly, we, it involves us being honest or practicing honesty. See, deceit w- meant trying to get something by trickery or, dis, uh, or by treachery. Yeah, remember I said the idea was by baiting a hook in order to get them to believe something that wasn't true. See, we're trying to deceive them. The the way that we counteract that is by being honest in our dealings with other people. We're to be honest with one another. Now, this doesn't mean you just walk around saying everything that comes to your head that's honest. You know, some of us do that and they go, "I'm, I'm practicing radical honesty. You're ugly and I don't like you. You smell too. That's not what it means. It means speaking the truth in love. Loving them enough to tell the truth. Not trying to make yourself look better than you really are. Not trying to make them feel worse or bad just because you don't like them. So we're to be honest. We're also to live a life that is holy. How do you get rid of hypocrisy? By practicing what you preach. That means living a life of holiness. Peter says that earlier in this text in chapter 1. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Which means set apart. It doesn't mean you can't have fun. Some people hear the idea of holiness in their mind, and then they have this, this uh the whole baggage of meaning that goes with it, and they think it means I can't have fun. Or you picture monks in cloisters chanting. That's what you interpret holiness as, but that's not what it means. It means living a life in accordance to what the truth of God says. Now, does that mean we're going to be perfect? No. It means that we're going to fail, but it means that we're continually hoping and trying each day by the Spirit's power as we crucify the flesh, as we die to self, and as we live in the new resurrection life that Christ enabled us to have by faith in Him, it means that we look more and more like Jesus each day. That's what it means. That's a question you have to ask yourself. Do I look more like Jesus than I did 10 years ago, if you've been in Christ for a long time? Five years ago? A year ago? Maybe a few months ago? I mean, and I'm not saying every day you're going to be more like Jesus. I mean, the hope is that. But we all know that we're going to take sometimes one step forward and two steps back. But the idea is, is we can keep getting and moving forward, becoming more like Jesus each passing day or year to grow in holiness, to get rid of hypocrisy, to recognize it for what it is and ask Christ by his spirit to empower us to live a life that is true to him. And by his spirit, we can all in this room do that. Many of us in this room have made resolutions for this new year. How many of you made resolutions? only a few of you. The other ones are like, I, I, I made a resolution last year to not make any resolutions this year. I am keeping my resolution. But we, like the other day, uh, we were changing our gym membership because I too wanted to make more of a resolution. And uh, I walked in and I said, well, what are your busy hours? They said, well, our busy months are January and February. And I smiled because I know why. Because everybody is getting in the gym. They want to work out and, and keep at it. And, and the hard thing is not getting started it's continuing. I mean, I, I've been there. I know what it's like. I mean, I'm, we all have things that we'd like to change in our lives, and our bodies. We want to lose more weight. We want to get in shape. We want to stop this behavior and that behavior. And then we get a few weeks in, and then we, we, we mess up a few times, and it's like, forget about it. We just quit. But by God's Spirit, we can live a holy life. And we are going to fail. The idea, again, is that we, after we fall, we stumble. We get back up and continue running with Him. And all of us can do that because why? Because if you are a Christian, God's spirit is within you. That same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, of growing the life of Jesus in you to make you more like Jesus, transforming you by the renewing of your mind and transforming you into the image of Christ. That is what God is doing by his spirit. We need to make sure that we are doing that and living holy lives because we know that we are without holiness. As Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. No one will see the Lord. We have to be holy. Next, we need to pursue a life of humility. That's how we counteract envy. Not looking at another person being jealous of them because we think we deserve that is by accepting The position of servant, of being humble, that's a hard thing to do. That's a very hard thing for us to do in our country, be humble. It's like the pastor who was getting interviewed, and they asked him the question, are you humble? And he responded with, well, you know, they're like, are you humble? And he says, well, you know, and they finally said, are you humble? And he said, yes, I'm humble. (laughs) doesn't work very well, does it? I remember I had that same question asked to me and I said no, but I'm trying. I'm trying. Jesus was humble. Jesus was so humble that we are to even put on his mind, meaning that we are to think like he did. As Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 through 8 says, have this mind among yourselves, which was yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He's our example. We're to be humble like him. We're going to fail. The idea is we continually admit it, repent of it, and then submit and surrender to him. Now... The last one we have is slander. Slander. How do we counteract slander? Slander means I'm putting down other people to make myself look better. The only way, or the opposite of that, is honoring others. Honoring others. Scripture is pretty clear. We're to, in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, we're to love one another with brotherly affection. How do we honor, or brotherly affection, excuse me, outdo one another in showing honor? By honoring them. You know, the Brothers Grimm told a story in their fairy tales about honor. The tale was entitled, The Old Man and His Grandson. And it goes like this. There was once a very old man whose eyes had become dim. His ears had became dull of hearing. His knees trembled. And when he sat at a table, he could hardly hold the spoon. And split the broth upon, he would split the broth, uh, or spill, excuse me, Spilt is the word they use. Spilt the broth upon the tablecloth or let it run out of his mouth. His son and his son's wife were disgusted at this, so the old grandfather at last had to sit in a corner behind the stove. And they gave him his food in an earthenware bowl and not even enough of it. And he used to look towards the table with his eyes full of tears. Once, too, his trembling hands could not hold the bowl, and it fell to the ground and broke. The young wife scolded him, but he said nothing and only sighed. Then they bought him a wooden bowl for a few halfpence out of which he had to eat. They were once sitting thus while the little grandson of only four years old began to gather together some bits of wood upon the ground. What are you doing there? asked the father. He said, I'm making a little trough, answered the child, for father and mother to eat out when I am big. The man and his wife looked at each other for a while and presently began to cry. Then they took the old grandfather to the table and henceforth always let him eat with them and likewise said nothing if he did spill a little of anything. I like what Thomas Carlyle said. He goes, show me the man you honor and I will know what kind of man you are. We honoring others? We honoring those that are older in our midst? As a culture, I think we've largely forgotten that. To honor those. We are to honor others. Others. Honor those that are deserving of honor. Are we honoring others? Are we trying to slander others and bring them down? If we're to grow up, we must be trusting in God's salvation, ridding ourselves of sinful behaviors, and then we need to make sure that we are longing for the Scriptures. Longing for the Scriptures. That's what Peter says. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, the word that's used there for Newborn is recently that. Recently born, newborn. The word for infant means baby, infant, and it's used of a nursing baby. And pure spiritual milk refers to uh, the purity of the word of God. Pure means without deceit, pure, unadulterated, uncontaminated. It's regularly used in the sense of corn, wheat, barley, oil, wine, and farm products. Today, I think we could even use the word organic. You know, it's without contamination, without chemicals, without any uh, hormones in it. It's completely pure. And we're to long for it. It's an imperative there, a command to long for, to desire, to crave. And it means, it's a, the way that it's written, it's an intensive desire directed toward an object. See, we're to long for it. the Scriptures, the Word of God, to thirst for it just like a baby does. And everyone who's a parent knows that a baby longs for that food, craves it, will cry if they don't get it, and won't be satisfied until they do. And it's amazing that the mother's milk contains all of these different things in it. I remember uh, when we were first pregnant, we read that book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, right? Well, my wife read it, and I listened to what she had to say. But I learned a lot about it. I mean, how wonderful it is that the mother's milk has all these antibodies in it, everything that the child needs for nourishment and growth. I mean, we can manufacture many different things, but we can't manufacture that to that extent, to that pure, to that type of nourishment. And God has designed that. And it's the same picture. We're to crave this pure spiritual milk like newborn babes. Not that we're all newborn babes, but we're to crave it like newborn babes. We're to long for it. Now, what does that mean? How do we long for it? How do we fill this craving that we have? Well, first of all, we need to read the scriptures, which means reading them frequently. We should be reading the scriptures frequently, daily, in fact. Think about the nation of Israel for a moment. When they're wandering in the wilderness and they're craving for food and God gives them manna and quail. Now, when when God brought down the manna from heaven, how often were they to go get it? Every every morning, right? They were to to just get enough for one day. They weren't to gather any more or any less. People tried to gather more, and it, it says that they awoke in the next morning to that excess, and it had worms and maggots in it. Why? Because God wanted them to understand that it was day by day that we depend upon Him. That's why Jesus laid it out. In the Lord's prayer, in Matthew chapter six, verse nine through thirteen, our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, there are two ideas present: present that God would supply our needs, just as He did for the Israelites but that we would find our greatest nourishment in Scripture. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How are you doing at reading? Are you reading the Scriptures? A Bible should never accumulate dust. Never. Never. You should be reading the Word of God. And more importantly, letting the Word of God read you. As it's been said, reading the Scripture is the only book that you can read in the entire world where the author is present every single time. It's true. We're to read the Word of God frequently, we're also to read it eagerly. Eagerly. Many of us, it's like, oh, I got to read, I got to get this done. I have to do my devotions, do this quiet time, rather than I have an opportunity to connect with Almighty God. Now, I will admit that there are times where it is a discipline, and you have to train yourself and force yourself. Even the greatest saints of old said that. But we should more often than not desire and eagerly read. I think about when my wife and I were dating, and uh, we, we started dating when I was in college, and she went back home in the summer to Florida. And uh, we couldn't call each other every day. We didn't have all these free cell phone plans like we had today. And she would write me letters. And how, I, 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 every day I would go to that mailbox, longing to not only read them, just see her handwriting, to hear her thoughts, smell them. She always sprayed them. It smelled so good. And I just treasure those. I mean, and if you've been around me, I kind of do the same with the Bible. Especially in new Bibles, I have this thing, it's kind of a weird, but I, I smell Bibles. I do. I smell them. Because cause I'm spending so much time with them, I just, the smell of the Scripture, it just blows my mind. Now everybody's going to walk around going, <laughs> I told that to my church in Massachusetts, and I looked up and two guys from the back going, <laughs> Okay? We're to, to f- read them frequently, and we're also to read them eagerly, expectantly, knowing that God desires to communicate with us. The Bible is God's love letter to us. It tells us how to live and how He delights in us and how He longs to bless us and show us Himself, but also that we are to be repentant and learn about who He is, that He is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of long-suffering, but He's also a God of wrath. So we're to be reading the Scriptures frequently, eagerly, And we also understand, we have to understand that it is our primary means of growth. That's what Peter says. He says that by reading it, we may grow up into our salvation. In other words, we grow up to look more like Jesus. How do we do that? By reading the scripture. It is our primary means of growth. That's how we grow. If you want to be a Christian and grow in your, your walk with Jesus Christ, you have to read the word of God. We follow and we become more like whatever we set before us all the time. Garbage in, garbage out. If we're taking in the word of God, we will continue to grow and be nourished on that word. Now, I had a few years ago an opportunity before I came here. I interviewed with a radio ministry in Nebraska. And uh, they flew me out to check out the ministry. And uh, when I got out there, I was... I I learned about uh, an endeavor that the initiative that the president had, his goal uh, was a pretty big ministry, uh, was to get a Bible in the hands of every American. That's what his goal was in this ministry. And and I'd heard about it, but they hired another guy on, and he wanted to to check and see, is that the best way? Uh, Is that the best thing to do? So they did a survey, and they surveyed 30,000 Americans. And they came away with saying, you know what? people have Bibles. Matter of fact, the average household has three. The problem is not people having Bibles, it's people reading them. That's a far different thing. We can get a hand, get a Bible in someone's hands, but that doesn't mean they're going to read it. And biblical literacy, illiteracy is up higher than it's ever been before. No longer are we nourished like previous generations were on the stories of the Bible, and we need to recover biblical literacy, which means that we need to be reading the Word of God. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that you're going to understand everything. Some of you are saying, I'm not a great reader. I don't have a lot of time. Well, you're in a car, or you've got a time of commute. You can get the Bible on CD. You can listen to, th- there's so many different Bible apps out there today, some of them even speak to you. Daryl was telling me about one the other day. It's the You version, right? You version Bible app, you can download it, you can listen to it while you drive. You need to be in the Word of God and let God speak to you on what it means to follow Him and the relationship that He longs to have with you, that you might do what is pleasing in His sight. Each one of us without ex- exception. We're to crave the Word of God. And I don't know if, if, if you're like me or not, but I can't stay away for, any, for a period of time. I, 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 get, I, I, I can't, I mean, I'm hungry. Even when uh, we miscarried and I didn't want to talk with God for a few days, I couldn't stay away because that was only where I could find true fulfillment. My, my questions answered and God speaking to me because the book is alive and God speaks to us through his word. This new year, as we're starting off, I, I would encourage you to make a fresh start. Find a Bible reading plan, and there are many that are out there. I mean, it might take you, and and I challenge you, to go through the Bible this year or these next two years. Some people are slower readers than others. It might take you two years to go through it, but find a plan. I recommend, I mean, if you want to go through the entire Bible in one year, here's what you do. You read four chapters in the Old Testament every day and one in the New, and I guarantee you will go through the entire Scripture. You will go through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice in a year. That might might be too much for you, and that's fine. Find something that works for you, whether it's this year or the next year, but read the Word, and then let it read you, and let God transform you, and see what God has for you and us as a body, as we experience Him and see what He has for us. If we commit ourselves to Him, we will find God's blessing being upon us in very extreme and wonderful and surprising ways. But it begins when we humble ourselves and seek Him, And not only seek Him in prayer, but the reading of the Word of God and God's learning what He has for us and then following it. For we will discover in doing so, God speaking to us, words of joy, words of hope, and words of peace, and our lives will be transformed because of it. All right? Let's do it.